Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Cuts to legal aid and the failings of our justice system over recent decades have made the lives of people already struggling with problems with their welfare benefits, jobs, housing and immigration much harder. In their new book, Justice in a Time of Austerity, Stories from a System in Crisis, it's published by Bristol University Press, John Robbins and Dan Newman tell the stories of people who have not been able to access justice and the stories of those who have tried to support them. It's really clear that it's often the moment where people fail to access justice that changes the direction of their lives for the worse. The book made me sad, frustrated, uh, but most of all angry because of the extreme way in which we're failing people who are very vulnerable already. It made me realise that human rights mean nothing without having a justice system that upholds them. So let's talk more. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Thank you for speaking to me today. It's a big question to start, but in the subtitle of the book, you say that the justice system is in crisis. We'll look at the detail as we talk, but can you give us an overview of the key issues to start with? Thank you very much for that. And I'm, I'm glad it kind of made you feel those emotions. Um, so we see you know, the justice system as a system in crisis, and we take as our starting point the introduction of austerity in 2010 and its impact on the justice system particularly on the access to justice. In other words, kind of the ability of ordinary people to enforce their rights. And we're looking at a particular aspect of the justice system that kind of we argue is all too often ignored by the media and kind of academic commentary as well. And that, that is around kind of social welfare law, law. Lawyers used to call this poverty law, possibly in less politically correct times, so it's kind of how people who have problems with their landlords suffer as a result of bad employers, have issues with the Home Office, how they can enforce their rights and the politics of austerity as a result of the economic crash in 2008, notably kind of reform of the welfare benefits system, hostile environment policies introduced by Theresa May, the housing crisis, et cetera, et cetera, how they kind of exacerbated the problems of kind of the failing justice system. And that's been brought into really sharp focus by the 2013 legal aid cuts. Yeah. So what we are doing is looking at social welfare law and the cuts under the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act in 2012, or, or LASPO as it's usually called. That is where most people pick up this debate. So that's the very obvious starting point for many discussions around what's happened to social welfare law. LASPO is seen as the starting point because it made these really dramatic cuts to the legal aid budget. So the budget was just over £2 billion a year. LASPO cut £350 million a year from that budget. So huge, huge cuts, which removed many areas of social welfare law from eligibility. So you can't get legal aid for certain aspects now. Things like welfare benefits, almost entirely taken out of scope so that before and after LASPA, you get a 99% drop in the amount of welfare benefits cases that wow. you get legal aid for. You think of all those people who would need help anyway, but let alone with what was happening during austerity with that awful introduction of universal credit with this hostile environment 
for benefits claimants, it's when they need help more than ever. But LASPA means people like that don't have any help anymore. So this is where we're, we're kicking off with LASPA as being something that is worth exploring because no study had really looked at the impact of LASPA in any real depth. So, so yeah, the LASPA cuts absolutely kind of reduce the legal aid scheme as much as could possibly be reduced. The only bits that remain in, in relation to what we're talking about, kind of social welfare law, is the stuff that is protected by kind of our international human rights obligations. So it is as paired back to the bone as it could possibly be. We'll look at the different themes in the book in a minute, but can you tell us first a bit about your backgrounds and how you came to write the book? Okay, well, I'll kick off on that, I guess. I'm an academic at Cardiff University. I do research on access to justice, it's what I've always done. Most of my research focuses on criminal justice and criminal legal aid, which has been subject to lots of cuts and has had really adverse impact on the lives of people who go through the criminal justice system because some of them are eligible for legal aid, many of them are thrown into a system where everybody is underpaid, under-resourced, underfunded, and they have a really crappy experience going through but most of my research focuses on criminal justice. I'd started thinking about how, well, I was doing this research and then there were other people doing brilliant research on criminal justice, but there wasn't as much being done on social welfare law. When everything I was hearing, everything I was seeing, showed me there might be an even bigger impact on people who needed access to justice, people who required legal aid, legal health assistance and social welfare law. So I started thinking about, it'd be great to do this project and, we have a, a scheme at my university where you can apply for research leave if you design this big year-long project. So I said, well, I'd like to do a project on this. And they said, yeah, and I ended up talking to John, because um, I know John from my previous criminal justice. We, okay. were, we kind of bumped against each other many times. And he said, well, I've, I've been planning to do something on this. So I really want to do something on that. So we thought, hang on, why don't we do this big project together? Because one of the things I wanted to do was to do a project which resonated outside of academia because yeah. as well as being frustrated at the lack of social welfare, well, I sound like a very frustrated person, I was also very frustrated by the way that when you write academic work, it often has a relatively small readership, you know? Yeah. So I wanted this to have that wider resonance. I'm a journalist by background, so I've been writing about social justice issues for 20 years, and my kind of focus has been over that period people who are at the sharp end of the justice system um i am also i'm an academic as well i'm a lecturer at sheffield and hallam sheffield hallam university um so i mean i've got a close connection with the legal aid sector so i've been previously i was a campaigns director for the, an organization called the legal action group um and really what I wanted to do with this book was to kind of write about the human consequences of this kind of deliberate undermining of the legal aid scheme. The frustration for me as a journalist is it's very easy to write about this difficult subject and feel you're just doing public relations for lawyers making the case for better pay. Actually, yeah. why people like me are interested in legal aid and why people like Dan are interested in legal aid is because we want people who are at the sharp end of the justice system to get treated properly and adequately. Um, it, it's not about making the case for better money for lawyers. So this is a project which was conceived really to kind of give voice to the people who are losing out. So the people that we speak to on our year of research are people who 
most of them have never seen a lawyer in relation to their urgent, desperate situation. Um, even if they had seen a lawyer, they probably wouldn't be eligible. They might not be eligible for legal aid. Even if they were eligible, legal aid might well have been cut or be inaccessible because of the 2013 legal aid cuts. But that's where we wanted to be, um, talking to those people, which is why we ended up going to the places that we went to uh, on yeah. the of our research. So you interviewed people in England and Wales over 12 months, I think starting in October 2018, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so what kinds of people did you speak to? I felt it was important that we go to the right places and we don't, we, we do it in a particular kind of way. So we went to different kinds of settings. We went to food banks, we went to destitution services for asylum seekers, we went to homeless shelters, we went to MP surgeries, we went to court waiting rooms, we went to local advice agencies, we went to law centres. We might end up at a food bank in Ebervale. <clears throat> we might end up to a kind of homeless shelter in the middle of Birmingham um, or Citizens Advice Bureau in Bolton. But it was very yeah. much, we would spend quite a long time there, a day, a morning, interviewing people. Uh, and that was the that was the process. And it's interesting in the book because you get the voices of both the people providing the services and the people receiving the services as well. So it's good to hear both sides. Yeah, we, we think that was really important. So what we did was we would, we mapped out, you said about the 12 months, we picked out roughly 12 areas. And the idea was, at 12 months we can keep our focus to one area for each month so yeah we did have oh, a combination okay. so say like um john could spend the day in duty court seeing who comes in to the court and watching what happens to them talking to them before and after getting that feedback and i might you know map out the local advice ecosystem is what we kind of call it because right. it's not just a case of oh, here's a lawyer here's a client that's the whole story if that ever was how it worked it's really not the way it is now with the destruction of legal okay. aid there's a much broader web of connections people go through so in most areas we'd go to i'd talk to local church groups who might have a food bank they might have a debt clinic or they might just have a local community organization who tries to support people who are having problems yeah. And that really shocked me, the amount of community groups and churches who were providing some manner of assistance, people going through welfare and debt problems, because that's something that I'd never, ever thought of before. But every area we'd go to, I'd find a group. Yeah. And these are people then having to get their heads around the complexities yeah. of the law, which is yeah. very, very you know, I'm a law lecturer. I, yeah. I couldn't do any of that. That's yeah. way above what I could do. And yeah, maybe I should be able to do it. So I probably shouldn't admit that <laughs> on a yeah. public forum. It's not a mm. great advert for me, but I couldn't do it. And the amount of people I've talked to are having to do it because they are seeing desperation yeah. amongst their communities. So they think, well, no one else is doing it. I have to step in. It was staggering. Yeah, that is staggering. I wanted to look at the themes of the books and we've kind of talked about them briefly, but there are four themes, housing, food poverty and welfare benefits, immigration and asylum, and family. I think it's probably an obvious question, but why did you decide to focus on these? I think the subject matter really was kind of self-selecting in the sense we wrote about what people were talking about, really. So yeah. we start off housing crisis. We actually start off in um, 
North Kensington Law Centre, um, which were, which is based in a basement building um, next to adjacent to Grenfell Tower. So when the, the um, Grenfell Tower fire happened, um, many of the families and the, the, the bereaved were assisted. It was the first port of call for help. And for us, it was significant because North Kensington Law Centre was the first law centre in the law centre movement, which is now this year, it's 50 years old. Um, and really, I suppose our one big theme of the book is to pay tribute to kind of the ideas, the radicalism that drove the law centre movement in its early days. And actually, we're seeing a renaissance of the law centre movement. So we, we kind of saw kind of Grenfell and the, the housing problem as housing crisis as, you know, the place we started our journey because we wanted to tell that story about it. And then kind of food poverty and welfare benefits. I mean, it was the, the year of the utterly dismal rollout of universal credit and the yes. delays on the first payment was just absolutely wreaking havoc left, right and centre. Um, so that, that was just a strong theme. The hostile environment, um, we saw so many, you know, kind of people who are victims of this kind of new change in approach this kind of harsher environment, harsher approach towards migrants and the lack of legal advice and support that people were getting really mm. was such a, a feature of many of the interviews that we did. Um, and the problems around family, again, I mean, you know, I think especially when we were going to advice agencies, we saw a lot of people who were just having to navigate the nightmare, the horror of marital breakdown without any kind of support there's a statistic in the book about how many people represent themselves. Yeah, the, in I mean, the family court that was quite shocking. The, the courts, the family courts, have been flooded by kind of litigants in person, and they're having to deal with the fallout of marital breakdown and the care of their yeah. children. And it's it's inhumane, and th that's such an important issue that we saw a lot of, um, mm. particularly a lot of fathers who are having to go through that uh difficult issue and just not getting any legal rep representation at all yeah so yeah they were the big four themes and the stories are so powerful in the book and they, yeah i think like i said in the introduction they really make you angry and sad the one that got to me was asthma this lady had three children she was in a violent relationship um and she was living in a refuge and they told her that she couldn't get any money couldn't get any universal credit and she just was totally stuck. Um, what stories had the most impact on you personally? Well, I mean, the Grenville stories are, Grenville is something I'll never stop being angry about. I, I, I think I rant about it most days to somebody. It's just the epitome of the way this society deems some people worthy and some people unworthy. Uh, it, it, yeah, I'm always gonna be angry about it, but uh, I got to talk to, um, Nuruddin from Justice for Grenville and a number of stories he was telling me about how traumatized people were still. So he's a Grenville survivor, he represents other survivors. He was just talking to us about, and it comes out in the book, about how so many people are still in this limbo state, I think he called it, mm. because their housing situation still hadn't been sorted out, you know, so many months, and now still people now years mm. later, and the way that the trauma and the stress that they'd gone through was exacerbated and every single day that they didn't have any 
kind of settled situation to their housing and people couldn't sleep and that was making it worse because they were having nightmares each evening about what had happened not just mm. adults but children so he was telling me stories about the children who were affected so that was tough on a personal level and I'm being really um impacted by another story that I went to a food bank in Ponteclean, which is the town I grew up in, so in, in South okay. Wales Valleys. Um, and I arranged to meet a guy who runs it, fantastic, inspiring a guy called Adrian. And I went along. I hadn't realised at the time that it was going to be in this particular church, which is why I used to go and play five-a-side football when I was okay. a kid. So I'd go there every Wednesday evening and play five-a-side football. And not only was the food bank in the church, it had taken over the hall, which used to be the sports hall. So that wasn't, you know, that wasn't used for five-a-side football now where, you know, kids like me with all these happy memories of just bashing the ball around, just shouting and laughing with their mates. It was just piled high with provisions for people who were in moments of crisis. And it's a bit jarring because I only ever associated that one particular place of happy memories. And now I was realizing there's a whole hope of people who go there mm. when they're at their most desperate. Yeah, at their most that. unhappy. Yeah. yeah, that was so personally affecting for me because it was something I hadn't even considered. And yeah. it was on my doorstep where I grew up. I don't know about, what about you, John? Well, I mean, just to mention the lady mentioned before, whose name was Asma, and we met her at the Hammersmith and Fulham Law Centre. And um, I suppose one of the constants was seeing people in you know a state of distress, I suppose. And she was very, she was beside herself. She was at the end of a table when she came in. And um, so she came into Hammersmith and Fulham Law Centre and she didn't really know what to expect, um, but she had no money at all at that point. I think she was 33 years old. She had three kids. She had lost her universal credit. So she was looking for help with universal credit. I don't think she had seen anyone. So she was coming to the food bank because she needed the support of the food bank. Right. Um, so she wasn't expecting to see a lawyer. She ended up talking to Sophie from Hammersmith and Fulham Law Centre. And um, she didn't really know who she was talking to. So she was describing the problem. Her housing benefit was going to her abusive husband, yeah. who she had been with for a number of years and had split up when they arrived in London. She had been caught in a refuge in Lincoln. So she knew no one in the country and she ended up living in Lincoln in a women's refuge and felt totally isolated, made her way back to London. And she was now in a refuge by the food bank, which was in a, a church in a very smart part of Fulham. And um, Sophie was able to kind of, you know, instantly diagnose the problem and say that there, there was an issue um, that needed to be resolved and it could well be the Department of Work and Pensions was at fault. <laughs> but um, the, the lady didn't really understand what on earth was going on and didn't really take in at first that she was talking to a lawyer. Okay. Um, and I met her at the end of the day and she then kind of told me more about the experience that she had been through, which was traumatic and just horrendous. And she was very, very upset. And I kind of said, well, well a step forward because you've now met with a lawyer and she's got your phone number and when I said goodbye she just turned around and said do you think she's ever going to ring me yeah. um, so I wrote this up for a piece for the Guardian and I 
I checked it, Sophie Earnshaw. Just wanted to make sure I was kind of correct on the salient facts. And so anyway, Sophie came out and said, that's all fine. But I did ring her back, you know, and I said, right, fine. And they actually got a good result and they got um, oh. her universal credit was reinstated. So, I mean, yeah. I personally, kind of the thing that kind of perhaps affected me most was we went to um, the Asylum Seeker Destitution Service run by a brilliant charity in Brighton called Voices in Exile. And mm. it's, it simply kind of had the most impact in a way because I live in Brighton okay. and I've never really been aware of a, an asylum seeker kind of population in Brighton at all. Um, Brighton's got a homeless population, um, but you don't really see many migrants on the streets. Um, right. And the uh, service was really, really busy. I mean, just shockingly busy. It was in the old table tennis center. And I mean, everyone I spoke to, you know, you know was destitute. And, you know, the, the woman I spoke to first was 66 year old woman. She previously worked for the World Health Organization in Cairo, and she was now- Oh, living. I remember her, yeah. Mm. She kind of presented as someone who you wouldn't, not to stereotype, but someone you just wouldn't expect to see. Yeah, there. very dig yeah. very dignified, very well dressed. Yeah. And she was literally living on a handout of 20 pounds a week from the Red Cross. And she was sleeping in the spare room of a widow who, um, I think she was a volunteer for Migrant Solidarity, another brilliant charity in, in Brighton. And she would, she was really unwell, but had so much on so much medication and she was just had this stressful life, but she was very, very dignified about it. And every month she would have to go to Luna House in Croydon to report into the home office. And the previous time she was there, she was ushered into a room by some kind of security guard, how she described it. She had a watch taken off her and the jewellery and all, all this stuff taken off her. And in her words, they attempted to deport her. And she was, she's diabetic and she passed out and just ended up absolutely dreadful. So every time she goes back to Luna House now in Croydon, she's accompanied by a um, volunteer from Migrant Solidarity. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, so she, she fled Cairo because she's a Coptic Christian, um, her husband died, her kids left home, and she was preyed upon by um, local Muslim brothers, and she left in terror of her life. You know, the common theme is the depth of kind of crisis that we saw people in. The, the difficulty about the debate around legal aid is people just kind of, many people don't understand actually what is at stake. And I think we wanted to make sure people did do. Yeah, it's, it's powerful stuff. And I must admit, before I read the book, like you hear legal aid cuts and the acts that go through and things, but your book really does show what happens when those kind of cuts are made. I think it's why it's so important we didn't just spend time with lawyers. We, yeah. Because so much of this stuff never gets to a lawyer. It's only in that moment of crisis someone finds out, oh, maybe this is a legal issue in the first place. For probably most of their time, they're struggling, they're desperate. They're anxious about what's going on. They might not even understand it's, you know, there might be some potential for legal recourse, you know, especially about kind of housing cases, welfare benefits cases. People are so conditioned in a hostile environment for benefits claimants, for example, are so conditioned to think they shouldn't be entitled to anything and they shouldn't mm. dare speak out and ask whether there might be something they're entitled to. So people just accept it. So one of the things we'd often see is, um, by the time something actually gets to a lawyer in a law centre or 
advisor and a citizen's advice, for example, the person would have been struggling on their own for a couple of years. And they might, I'd hear this story again, again, again. When they finally came into an office, they'd come in with like two or three massive carrier bags full of letters and paperwork they've accumulated over the period. They'd never be able to deal with it before then because no. something that starts off being, oh yeah, I'll, I'll put that to one side and deal with it later because I can't face it right now gets increasingly more stressful and anxiety inducing and then confusing and then bewildering and then where do you start after someone's been chasing you for a year yeah so when you're finally at that most desperate point but you have to present yourself at the advice center or whatever you've accumulated all of this stuff over the years and it that is what you really need a lawyer then to start to take apart and work out what the issues are and it's that idea of crisis being the point they present it's something i think we need to to move beyond teach people you don't have to wait until you get into that moment of crisis you should try and find about help is available for you now legal aid cuts have made that difficult but it yeah. is you know there is a network of advice provision out there that people can go to and get early advice on we'll probably come back to the idea of early advice later because we might right. talk about what we think needs to be done but yes. getting these problems early before it gets that moment of crisis is really key and then they wouldn't escalate in the way that we're talking about with some of these more emotive examples that we come across so I'm just going to jump forward a bit to another question, which was, um, it's short-sighted, right? Why do you think the government fails to see the short-sightedness of decimating the system? I mean, it costs us all a lot more money and people a lot more pain to not provide support at this early stage, earlier stage. Well, it's been run down over successive governments. I mean, I, I suppose the government, you know, this government is suspicious of legal aid. Um, and, you know, that, that's gone back to, goes back to previous governments, I mean, New Labour. One of the reasons why we wanted to go back on the history of legal aid a bit is um, the New Labour government did not have a great record when it came to legal aid reform. Um, much of this government now, much of their energy seems to be around kind of eroding people's rights. And I just don't think politicians of that, this generation on you know um get the value of social welfare law advice and we wanted to kind of contextualize this and talk about the role of legal aid uh, where it might fit with the welfare state and sort of kind of make a, make a more coherent case for the benefit of public uh publicly funded legal advice i think for a long time there's been this rhetoric of the fat cat lawyers that's been presented by successive governments and then of course the media tends to enjoy this as well and John has written a, a book which is brilliant about this previously um, but this kind of language that's been used to demonize legal aid and the idea mm. of using a lot of help I think has had it's just gathered momentum over successive decades so that the way many people if you don't understand the reality of the system and many people come at the idea of legal aid is with this prejudice that it's all about um, fat cat lawyers riding the gravy train and milking the system but, you know most most people wouldn't understand what goes on so they'll get their idea of it from the media and from the politicians who feed the media and mm -hmm. I think that's a major reason because he just built this self-justifying rhetoric that lawyers are all just in it to grab all these millions of pounds they get from legal aid cases yeah. and that obscures the reality that it should be about the people who are struggling on the other side and that's exactly what your book does. It does, yeah. it gives voices to those people and it gives us that balanced view, doesn't it? Um, you've both mentioned um, media 
and media coverage about access to justice. Why do you think that access to justice is an area that's kind of ignored in the media and ignored generally as a cause? Uh, as a journalist who's written about access to justice for 20 years, I mean, I not saying you've qualified. been totally ignored. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Friedland's Guardian journalist um, years ago rather brilliantly described uh, legal aid as the most friendless wing of the welfare state. Uh, and he's absolutely right. I mean, I think conceptually it's just difficult to describe. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing the book, really, to humanise the yeah. issues here and to make sure people actually understand what we're talking about. Legal aid hasn't had like a Kathy come home moment, if you know what I mean, you know, kind of when. The, the nation has suddenly become seized by an awareness of, you know, what it's all about. Mm. Um, you, you know, when the kind of Kathy came home, the Ken Loach film came out, that was, I think, Shelter was soon started up and then yeah. Crisis was started up. I don't think th there's been anything that's kind of caught that mood um, and managed to kind of sum it up because it, these are kind of seemingly technical and disparate issues. We're kind of talking about people's help in employment issues and in housing issues and welfare benefits issues. So it, 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 it is difficult. It is kind of conceptually a bit difficult. The idea of this kind of safety net needs to be made in the form of a campaign, we would argue. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, yeah I think that's totally right. And it is hard. It's, you know, it's hard to... The reasons John's just been saying, you know, there are so many disparate and technical and complex aspects of legal aid. It's not just you can say, right, it's this one concrete problem and these people experience that problem, this is the solution. It's not, we're talking about so many different issues across so many different areas, you know, across housing, across family law, across welfare benefits, across immigration, asylum, across employment. There's so much going on there. It's, it's really hard to conceptualize it in that way, especially when you're doing it against the background where the very idea of the welfare state has been demonized for so long and people who are reliant upon it have been othered. So yeah. the idea, and one of the problems I always come across with trying to, to get people to have empathy for those who are suffering or access justice and legal aid problems is that it's always assumed to be somebody else's problem. Oh yeah, well that wouldn't really affect me, you know, mm. which is the same kind of, it's, it's a very hard, discussion to sell. There has to be some criticism of the media as well, because I think the, the way, Jess, you framed the question is, you know, why uh, has the issue been ignored? Why is there so little media coverage? Um, there is a failure on the part, I don't know what, if Dan, if you think this way at all, but I think, I think there's a failure on the part of the press to kind of cover these issues that well. So we see fewer journalists in the courts and you see it around the issue around, I mean, personally speaking about something else around miscarriages of justice, where, mm. you know, I would argue the press is, is, is falling down and just not doing what it should be doing in terms of yeah. a proper examination of the justice system. And I see legal aid, I recognise legal aid is a different issue, but I do wish the media would kind of properly get to grips with it. Um, but, you know, that's a challenge for me as a journalist, obviously. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm um, talking about moving forward. In the last chapter of the book, you outline recommendations um, for breaking down all the barriers that exist, or trying to break down some of the barriers that exist, I guess, and um, trying to fix some of the problems that have been caused by the um, LASPO regime. So do you want to run us through some of the recommendations with a bit of a view to kind of making things better for the future? 
Well, one of our starting points is there was a, a commission um, from Fabian Society a couple of years ago. Uh, it was about what could be done about access to justice. And there was a whole heap of fantastic recommendations made. Ed. One of the ones we take and think would be quite integral to a lot of stuff we're talking about is the idea of this right to justice act. So it puts the idea of access to justice on the statute book and tries to restore the kind of political consensus of access to justice is an important principle, which you know, was broadly there after World War II when we saw the construction of a welfare state and then we saw legal aid as a way to enforce your rights to the yes. welfare state. So we, we kind of think that would be important because it would have that political recognition about building that consensus, whether or not that is feasible. I don't know, but I think as an aspiration, I think that's a, a really important thing to work towards. And perhaps that could be the head of some sort of campaign which tries to mm. fight for access to justice. I think pushing that angle is the kind of thing that might get more um, more sympathy and more empathy from people. You know, we've we've gone through years of people wanting to take back control and, and so on. And I think it it could broadly appeal to lots of different social demographic groups about giving people more more power over their own lives and I think that would be one way to be able to do that um yeah we talk about things like early advice early advice is really important because it can mean that you can tackle a problem really early on when someone first loses their job and has difficulties claiming benefits say you can tackle the problem there rather than yeah. that snowball into some sort of issue with um rent payments being missed and people losing their home as well because yeah. these things do grow. As part of their review, the government, the UK government, said they'd look into the impact of early intervention to evaluate whether it is cost effective. I'm not sure what state that's in right now with okay. everything that's gone on yeah. in the kind of two years since those proposals were made. I don't know what okay. state it's in. But that's one that there feasibly could be some momentum behind that idea of early intervention. Local advice, support for local advice clinics. I think the thing that we saw repeatedly was going into the value of advice in food banks, in homeless advice shelters. I mean, I suppose the places, what we were seeing was kind of pioneering advice clinics. You know, we don't want to give the impression that they are available everywhere they need, need to be. Right. They okay. are absolutely not. Um, and just straightforward, accessible legal advice for people. You make the courts properly friendly for people who have to navigate the courts independently so you know the fact that we call litigants in person litigants in person still you know language is really really important yeah you know it's such a barrier know, it's, isn't it and it's so easy to change but there's a kind of an institutional uh, resistance to even the most straightforward changes people have been right. talking in legal circles about dropping these kind of terms like litigant in person terms like pro bono Mm. the donkey's years um and still they kind of persist so you know we make the case for kind of sensible easy access to really high quality legal information there is a dearth of decent legal education uh, legal information out there an absolute mm. lack of the most basic clear clearly written advice about people's legal rights so things like that are really important but just aren't being done so we highlight those issues as well Shami Chakrabarti wrote The Ford, and she describes your book as a call to arms. So as a final question, 
Um, I, I mean, like I said in the introduction, the book made me angry and I think anyone who reads it, I hope, will feel the same and will want to try and make change. What actions can we take as individuals now to start to make this happen? Well, we need a properly funded system of legal advice and support that goes without saying, but there's a kind of a positive message, I think, really, which is we record this idea of the resurgence of the law centre movement. Uh, and that's largely built on community activism and people in their own areas saying, you know, we recognise this is something that we need to do and coming together and leverage with kind of pro bono support as well. I mean, that, that in itself is, is a problematic model, but I think it offers us a, a way forward that we're seeing kind of a new generation of activism and the potential, you know, who see the potential for the law to kind of better the community. So we kind of, we start off with exploring the origins of the law centre movement, this idea of kind of radical law and people helping their own communities. And that's kind of where we come to in the end. I think that that's kind of, I'm hoping we can kind of feed into that Mm -hmm. uh, kind of resurgence. Are there specific campaigns and work happening now that people can look up and find Oh, I should, yes, right. The Justice Alliance, because I think they've been kind of leading the way of late. Um, I mean, you feel free to follow the Justice Gap, dare I say it. Um, I was going to give that a shout out at the which end. Which is my website. Um, and also, who else, Dan, would you mention? Legal Action Group are great. Law Centre Network, brilliant. That's great, and we can put the links, I'll dig out the links, and we can put the links in the copy to the podcast so people can find out more. That's brilliant. Thank you, John and Dan, for speaking to me. I thank you for writing this book, actually, because it really is powerful, and I really hope it makes people think differently and creates empathy for people for people being hurt by this really and there's lots of people being really badly hurt i think that's one of the things that we need to do is people not just read this book but read things like secret powers to read accounts of what's going on and then share mm. with people you know because if you, you know if you don't seek out a particular book like this you're not likely to be aware of reality of what's going on that's the way we change those we talk about the media narratives and the, the political yeah. rhetoric which dominates it's having these conversations you know next time you're in the pub and someone starts talking about oh so and so is they've got seventy thousand pounds of legal aid and all this kind of stuff so well actually the reality is this you know next time someone tells her i just read this in a in a you know next time your uncle on facebook posts something that he's just seen on the daily yeah. mail so well, actually this says this just subtly trying to challenge it and developing that empathy because you're right empathy is, is the key here. yeah that's how you make a difference isn't it by yeah. sharing and talking to people yeah. even if it's hard to do sometimes, I think. Um, thank you for speaking to me today. It's been really interesting. Justice in a Time of Austerity, Stories from a System in Crisis by John Robbins and Daniel Newman is published by Bristol University Press and more information can be found on our website. And also, as we mentioned, John is the editor of The Justice Gap, which is an online magazine about the gap between law and justice. And you can find out more about that at thejusticegap.com.